When the rules of society are broken, things can get a little wild. This is Wild Society. Welcome to Wild Society. I'm Chad Previch. I'm Bethany. And I'm Jordan. And I'm Courtney. Just kidding. <laughs> Courtney's not here. We are a true crime comedy podcast. <laughs> we'll get into that in a little bit. Each week we discuss a murder case followed by a true story in the realm of the wild and bizarre. It may be an unsolved mystery, a conspiracy, or an insane event from history. There's no telling, but we'll tell you about it. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Yes. As I said, Courtney's not here today because she's abandoned. She's quit the podcast. She hasn't quit the podcast. No. She has a sinus infection. Yes. She doesn't have COVID. She tested negative. So don't worry about that. But she tested positive for basic sism. <laughs> basic tism. She's really sick. And we're having a pretty bad ice storm in Oklahoma City today. Her house lost power. Her... Baby girl's been crying all day. Their toilet was overflowing. Uh, people didn't even know that part. <laughs> she's ha- she's having a day. She <laughs> ate a lot of fiber the day before. No. <laughs> oh, it was for something else. Okay. <laughs> no, she's not that kind of sick. Anyway, we're still going to have a murder this episode, so stay tuned. And Courtney will be back next week. Yeah, we have a guest um, host we found another Courtney who's going to be just kidding. It's just the three of us. You're stuck with just the three of us. Courtney's like crying in a corner in her house because <laughs> you just said you replaced her. We kind of do have six co-hosts, though, this week. Hey. On our desk. we Six we do. guest co-hosts. Yeah. Do you want to talk about this, Bethany? So I got us, you know, our first story was Marilyn. We've talked about our girl Dolly. Talked about how we love the Spice Girls. Everyone knows that Karen Kilgariff is the OG badass of true crime comedy. Karen. Keith Morrison. I mean, hello. They were murdered. (laughs) That's my bad Keith Morrison impression. (laughs) And RuPaul is the person we all wish was our best friend. So what I did was I got us some patron saint candles (laughs) for our podcast studio. And koozies. Yeah, and some koozies. So yeah, but those six are our... Patron saints of the podcast in candle form. But yeah, I did get us some fun koozies. Chad is a huge Jessica Lang fangirl. You can legally say stalker. I'm fine with that. It's true. <laughs> so I had to get him a Jessica Lang patron saint koozie. But we got we got Lizzo, we got Dan Levy, we got Selena, got Beyonce, Harry Styles, Girl Carity, and Mariah. So, you know, all the greats. You know, because all I want for Christmas is you. <laughs> and we got some love from Dateline NBC last night, which was amazing. I kind of That's freaked pretty out. pretty amazing. Yeah. Jordan styled this photo of the candles in our studio. And I think you posted it, Bethany. Mm-hmm. And um, it was on Twitter and Instagram. And I thought, so I saw this alert come up that said Dateline NBC has liked your photo. And I was like, who's playing a joke on us? <laughs> So I went in there and I saw the blue check mark and I think we all freaked out. I really freaked out. Dateline is how I got into true crime because I spent a lot of weekends with my grandparents and every weekend we'd watch the local news and then we'd watch Dateline. And at first I was terrified and then it got like weirdly comforting because my grandparents' house was a very comforting place to me. Oh. Yeah. Dateline. I love you. I have RuPaul and Keith next to me. And it's cold, so I might light this actually later for fire. (laughs) It is literally freezing in Oklahoma City today. We left work today because the power kept going out, like pitch black, creepy Halloween week. Oh, yeah, it is Halloween. Yes, and so we we left early today and finished work at home. We're recording earlier than we normally do because we're afraid the power might go out at any moment. So hopefully we get through the whole episode. I got off early like at three and I got my spray de-icer going and got my... What's that called? Scraper going? It's called a scraper. I I don't have any gloves, so my hands are numb at this point. And one of my coworkers, shout out to Lisa. 
she she forgot her she forgot her de-icer stuff and then her trunk was frozen shut so i had to help her out a good guy later this week we'll be releasing our halloween episode and on it we talk about my favorite ghost show ghost nation and i was deeply enthralled in an episode on saturday night and it was about this creepy georgia mansion from back in the civil war period and it was super creepy and i'm really into it and i'm sitting there and within about a second time frame the dogs jump off the couch bark and there's this knock at the door and i almost died i was freaking out my heart was jumping and it is bethany at the door knocking at the door and i almost died usually the way their house is set up they always can see me coming so usually they're at the door by the time i get to the door and no one was at the door, which I thought was kind of weird. So I did like a weird knock. I it was went, a weird knock? Was That's like, what it was. Ugh. And then Ugh, Chad freaked out. It sounded like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> it was like a nail knock. Like I used yeah. my nails. It was like if Freddy Krueger was selling Girl Scout cookies. That's what it sounded <laughs> like. It scared, terrified me. I was in the bathroom and all of a sudden I heard this super high-pitched scream. It was a manly I re- scream. I realized. It was manly. <laughs> we also answered some questions that we've been getting um, about the podcast in general and some behind-the-scenes stuff. So that's on our... On all the things. All the things. It's even on our website on the host page. So check it out. Yeah. We're very self-conscious of our earliest episodes because we were new and we're still new, but... Our equipment wasn't as good. We were trying to figure things out. We were nervous. I felt like I couldn't breathe the whole time we were recording. So if you're not super impressed by us in episode one or two, stick around because we get better. Or six. (laughs) If you don't like what we're saying currently, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Just keep downloading it. (laughs) I don't don't care if you listen. Just download it. Yeah. Well, you don't even have to listen. (laughs) Just press play. Let your phone hang out for an hour and a half. We don't care at this point. Not true. No, just kidding. We we don't care. See how I did that? <laughs> I didn't see that. Just let your eyes glaze over like I do when Chad talks. <laughs> you listen to every word. He doesn't he doesn't listen to anything I say at all. What? Oh, by the way, I have to apologize for my apology from last week. So last week I apologized about the hot dogs with cream cheese. Mm-hmm. So in my apology, I said that I would prefer still gross. I would prefer Teddy Nettie's hot dogs or something over Eskimo Joe's cheese fries. Dirty Curdy, right? Dirty Curdy's yeah. over the cheese fries. But then I heard from the Eskimo Joe's people that how could I say that? So I'm just going to stop talking about food on this no, episode this or a podcast. podcast. Yeah. Anyway. So enjoy your food, people. <laughs> cheese fries. Just saying. Cheese in general is fine. Yeah, definitely. So it is Halloween week, but it's the weirdest year ever, COVID. So we can't really do anything like normal. Are you guys going to celebrate in any way? No, this is like the first year I think in my entire life that I've never given out candy for Halloween. Yeah. And this is like the first year in forever. I think I haven't gone to a haunted house. Yeah. We're like Halloween super freaks. We go to lame. This year sucks. Yeah. Last year we were in New Orleans. We've gone to New Orleans a bunch of times for Halloween. I've been to Salem for Halloween. This is awesome. So fun. If you all hear things in the background, it's not a ghost. It's ice falling on our <laughs> roof. <laughs> yeah. Literally. There's like a tree resting on the top of our house. <laughs> we never get ice this early. So actually, it could be somebody on our roof. We actually don't know. We're inside. Who knows? Oklahoma weather is so insane. It's supposed to be like 65 and sunny this weekend. Halloween's on a Saturday. It's going to be beautiful. And there's and nothing we, can't we celebrate. There's nothing we can do about it. I bought a ticket for the virtual event that Bette Midler is doing. Let's see. It's with the New York Restoration Project. She, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Jimmy are all reprising their roles as the Sanderson sisters. And it's only online. You, tickets are like 10 bucks, So it's cheap, you guys. And hello. Hocus Pocus. Love Hocus Pocus. Elvira is going to host with them. And it's going to be a documentary style show that delves into the sisters' history. So I think it's going to be really funny and really interesting and entertaining. Really? It's like a prequel almost. We're going to have to do that. When is it? It's on Friday. Friday. Okay. It's on Friday at a certain time and you have to be like logged in or you'll miss it. Glenn Close, Billy Crystal, Jamie Lee Curtis, my girl Meryl Streep. Oh my gosh. There's a lot. Yeah, Martin Short. I watch it. There's a lot of people. Martin Short? Yeah. Todrick Hall. 
there's a lot of people that are going to be making appearances. So I think it'll be super entertaining. Jessica Lange? No, Jessica mm-hmm. Lange. Okay. Have you guys, have you ever watched that show on Netflix called Dark Tourist? Yes. I love that show. I know. We watched it, I don't know if it was last year or the year before last. It, it was really good. I don't know why they haven't come out with a second season. I know. They need to. If you remember, one of the stories was about McKamey Manor and it's a haunted house. It's like an extreme haunted house in Tennessee and it's originated in San Diego from a guy named Russ McKamey. I just want to mention this. It popped in my head because I said we haven't been to any haunted houses this year. This haunted house just is so crazy. I think you have to sign a waiver to go into it, but they can literally do whatever they want to you except for kill you. And they want to know like what your worst nightmares are. Like if you're afraid of spiders, they're probably going to put you in a box and fill it with tarantulas. It's like insane. Whatever you can think of besides being killed. And not even think of. They'll lock you in a coffin. Ew, no. They'll make you eat sardines. (laughs) Those type of things with mustard. (laughs) It's been really controversial because people obviously get injured they do actually get hurt yeah people have gotten really hurt in it because i mean you're being like tied up you're being like physically kind of yanked around Mm -hmm. you're getting screamed at and spit on it's really messed up that's not for me and if anyone out there listening has been there let us know oh yeah that would be i would be down for hearing about yeah for sure i'd love to know your experiences from that that would be fascinating i don't like people touching me you'll probably get hit so (laughs) Okay, Ginger Spice is staring at... Can someone turn her around? That's, <laughs> she's staring she's at staring me. staring a little too intensely. Karen's smiling at me happily, though. Karen Kilgariff. <laughs> I'm telling you, that looks like Nev Campbell. She does look like the Nev Karen Campbell. The Karen Kilgariff picture. <laughs> I think that would flatter Karen. I love how Keith Morrison's holding a lamb. That's. I think that's my favorite <laughs> and position. And his facial expression is the best one. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. Did we say who made these candles? Oh, they're made by a company in Austin. Well, I think it's actually in Buda, Texas, which is like right outside of Austin, called Illuminidal. They're awesome. I love it. And they actually reposted our photo too on yeah. their Instagram. So check them out. Their candles are, they're awesome. So they're from Buda, Texas, but they make patron saint candles. <laughs> oh, it's all coming it's together. differently. <laughs> it's all coming together. B-U-D-A. <laughs> I really love the Dolly one because... Her hair is so large that it looks like her halo, but it's mostly just hair. <laughs> it's almost, they almost ran out of space for the halo because her hair's so big. Hey, um, would this podcast end if I said that Jessica Lange was a better actress than Marilyn Monroe? Mm. <laughs> wow. Well, it's no, been a, it's no. been a pleasure no. um, sharing our stories and our life no. secrets with you, but this podcast is over with. It wouldn't end. I've never seen a Marilyn Monroe movie. I think that if Marilyn was alive in this day and time, she'd be on par with Jessica. I think it's so funny that I said it as a joke and Bethany went into like analysis mode and she is like not joking. She her, her hand started joking. shaking. <laughs> I'm very defensive. Of There's Marilyn. a beat of sweat. There's one bead of sweat her that's on her trembled. forehead. Even though there's ice and it's freezing. Yeah. All of a sudden, old Western music started playing. <laughs> it's a standoff. She's like, I brought my shotgun with me. It's in my back seat. Uh, no, I didn't. So before we get into our stories this week, head over to our website, wildsocietypodcast.com. You can see all of the images that we discuss on this episode. There will be some on our Instagram, but... There will be more on our website, so go check that out. Also, wherever you're listening to us, whatever podcast listening app, hit subscribe or follow. And if you're feeling like you really like us, leave us a rating or a review. It helps us big time since we're new and we're independent podcasts. It helps us grow and helps other people find us. It helps you along your life journey, too, I feel like, because um, spiritually, you can grow by growing other things like plants and podcasts. Sure. And lighting candles of RuPaul. Sorry, I totally zoned out. What were you saying? Don't talk to Bethany that way. (laughs) (laughs) Everything Bethany says is very important. I am the boss lady. (laughs) This week, I am filling in for Courtney, and we are going to be talking about the Tulsa Girl Scout murders. Ooh. Okay, I saw this on the list. Was Did you have it on the list and you moved it up? Yes, I was going to wait to do it in the summer. Okay. But... It really is one of the scariest stories ever. It is, yeah. And with it being Halloween week, 
This is the ultimate scary true crime story. And we've been getting so many requests for this story. Yeah, definitely the most requested story. I'm going to give out a warning because this case is very heavy and dark. It involves children and is a very tragic story. So this is the warning if you want to fast forward to Jordan's wild story. Which is very... Yeah, I would say, I don't know if that's... <laughs> Which <laughs> isn't much better. <laughs> you might want to just enjoy your cocktail in the rest of the week and catch up with us on the Halloween episode. <laughs> the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders occurred on the morning of June 13th, 1977 at Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma, which is in the northeast part of Oklahoma. There were three victims, Lori Lee Farmer, who was eight years old, less than a week away from her ninth birthday, Michelle Heather Gousset, who was nine, and Doris Denise Milner, who was 10, and she went by Denise, so I'm going to say Denise for the rest of the story. Camp Scott was a 410-acre camp that opened in 1928. It's about 50 miles from Tulsa in the densely wooded hill country of Oklahoma. There were several units throughout the camp, and each unit had several tents. The tents were 12 by 14 feet with canvas sides that could be rolled up. They sat on wooden platforms, and each tent had four cots inside. There were a lot of trees. It was a very heavily wooded camp. So the trees and the undergrowth around the wooden platforms provided a lot of sound insulation. The tents were arranged in a horseshoe shape, so like a half circle, and there were no lights. They only had flashlights. So one of the campers said it's the darkest darkness she had ever experienced, even to this day as an adult. Girl, I'm looking at this tent, and this this is not my idea of luxury camping it's, over it's here. It's definitely not glamping. Mm. This is not what you see in The Parent Trap. That looks like a mix between a tent and a teepee. I don't like it. That kind of basically is. I mean, the the walls would roll up, so if it was hot, you could roll up the tarp and let the breeze in. Mm-hmm. Here come the animals. Right? I know. It's it's. I'm not a camper. <laughs> You're a glamper. I'm a glamper. Camping to me is staying at like a... La Quinta. Yeah. That's being generous. I like La Quinta ends. I have stayed in restored Airstreams, and that's really fun. What's an Airstream? I, you know, I've always wanted to do the that. The silver like in Austin. Airstream campers, you know? The like retro style, they're silver metal campers. You don't know what an Airstream sure. trailer is? Sure. No, I do. Google it and you'll I don't be know like, oh, yeah. Is. Anyway, back to the story. Seven years before these murders took place, former head counselor Constance Cunningham said that in 1970, campers told her they heard heavy breathing outside their tents at night. She was a counselor for two years, and she said tents were ransacked on many occasions. So this is, you know, years before the murders happened that we're going to get into. Did they ever investigate that? There's more. Gosh, Stay tuned. I don't like where this is heading. Campers and counselors saw intruders at night inside the camp. In 1971, Constance sat in a tent with four teenage scouts as she held a gun all night long because the night before a strange man had come into the tent. Constance talked to the camp director, but she said, quote, she brushed it off and said, we've had several things going on in summers past. She cautioned us not to say a thing of what had gone on the summer before to the counselors that were new. She didn't want to upset them. Constance says one of the counselors reported hearing a male person calling, help me, help me, please help me, I'm hurt. Shortly after, someone started ransacking the tents. Constance also said, quote, they were just pushing it aside as nothing important. I was told that it had gone on in summers past, but no harm had been done. Just don't worry about it, end quote. So things had been happening in the years leading up to these tragic murders. And on a personal note, what's personally really creepy is my mom and my aunt grew up in Tulsa and they grew up going to this Girl Scout camp and they would have been here in 1970 and 1971 when these things were happening in the years leading up to the murders. Oh, my mom was born and raised in Tulsa. So I wonder, she, I've never really asked her if she knows anything about this. I'm sure she does. So I asked my mom, you know, about her experiences. And she said that, you know, she remembers there being tons of trees and that it was just really beautiful. She said she always felt like she was a big kid because they were just with their friends and, you know, they weren't there with their parents. And it was just kind of, you know, a time of freedom going off to summer camp. 
She said she only has happy memories and thoughts of like fun and warmth. I also asked her, you know, as we get into the details of what happened, there weren't counselors in the tents with the kids. And to me, you know, in this day and age, that's mind blowing. (laughs) <laughs> like what? Where were the counselors? Were they in a cabin somewhere? Or were they, they close had by? their own tent. Yeah. So the tents in each unit, you know, made a horseshoe, like a half circle. Mm-hmm. We're in Oklahoma. I know what a horseshoe is. <laughs> the first tent was the counselor's tent at one end of the half circle. And then they went around the circle to the opposite end. You would think they at least would put the counselors in the middle if they're not going to yeah. be in the Or like tent. one in each tent. I right. don't know. I asked my mom about this, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s. And she said that it was totally normal. Like that wasn't even something that would have even crossed anyone's mind. Well, if you look at Friday the 13th, there's a counselor cabin. Oh, the documentary Friday the 13th. Yeah, it's a great Mm -hmm. documentary. (laughs) So about two months before the murders, during a counselor training session, a camp counselor discovered that her belongings had been ransacked within her cabin. She also saw that the donuts she had in a box were completely gone or eaten And left in the box was a disturbing handwritten note stating in capital letters, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Um, This is like the most irresponsible camp of all time. It's really disheartening. The director of the camp session treated the note as a prank. As I always say, hilarious. Right? I mean, no humor in that. And they even threw the note away. So different reports said that it said different things, but essentially the main one that I kept coming across was what I just read. Some of the reports said that it had a drawing of a man hanging from a tree, and some reports said that the reason why they thought that it was just a prank letter is because they talked about Martians in the letter. I think there's a lot of question marks because the note just was thrown away and treat it as a prank. I think the person who wrote that was watching signs and they just got confused on what file they were working from. (laughs) This was 1977, though. Well, maybe they had the screenplay early. I don't know. I can't get over how much I'm creeped out by these tents. These are not cabins. These are literal tents. You just walk right in. Yeah, they're just on a wooden platform for elevation. Here comes the bugs. Here comes everything. (laughs) Killers. Walk right in. So I'm going to talk about the three girls who were murdered at this camp. Lori Lee Farmer, Denise Milner, and Michelle Heather Gousset. All three girls were extremely bright, very smart, very involved in their communities. Michelle had been to this camp the previous summer. She was super excited to go back for this summer. Lori was actually advanced a year in school because she was super smart. Her parents have said that she was just brilliant um, beyond her years. And even though she was the youngest one, she really held her own and kept up with everybody. She was very adventurous and outgoing. She really wanted to go to summer camp. So she begged her parents to let her go. And they narrowed it down to either this Girl Scout camp or the camp that the Y was doing. And Lori just was like, mom, you can pick. I don't care. I just want to go to summer camp. So her mom picked the Girl Scouts camp. That poor mom. And she says that she carries that weight every day, even, Uh, you know, still. You can't do that. But it's easy to do that. Right. Denise, she was a really great student at school. She'd won all kinds of awards. She had been accepted into a prestigious school for the upcoming year. But she was one of those girls who, I don't know if this happens to boys at summer parties, but there's usually one or two that, you know, don't actually want to stay the night. So they'll call their parents and have their parents come pick them up. She really loved, you know, just being at home and being in her own bed. She just kind of got homesick. I call my mom every night and I'm like, I do not want to stay with Jordan. And she's like, (laughs) I am in a different time zone. So you need to man up. She's like, Chad, honey, you signed a document. Yeah. Called a marriage license. I'm like, mom, stop throwing that in my face. So Denise's mom was really surprised that Denise all of a sudden had an interest in going to summer camp. It was her idea. She really wanted to go. And her mom kind of tried to talk her out of it almost because she had a feeling that, you know, she wouldn't end up wanting to stay. They signed up, paid for the camp. And as it got closer, I think it was like the maybe the day before or the morning of, you know, kind of the anxiety took over. And she's like, I don't want to go. I really don't want to go. And her mom consoled her and basically convinced her to go to the camp. 
give it a shot. She's like, you know, just just go spend one night. And if you don't like it, I'll come get you. These poor moms. I, I, I feel terrible for them. Watching them being interviewed was really hard, really hard to watch. Now we're going to get into the details of that night slash early morning. Around 7 p.m. on Sunday, June 12th, 1977, the first night of camp, a thunderstorm hit and all the campers huddled in their tents. There were 27 girls staying in the Kiowa unit, which was the most isolated unit of Camp Scott. So there's all these what they called units throughout the campground, and each one was named after a Native American tribe. The Kiowa unit where these girls were staying was located on the outer edge of the grounds. Lori, Denise, and Michelle were sharing tent number eight. So we will post a picture that kind of shows the layout of the camp overall. And then the next image is a diagram where you can see the half circle or the horseshoe formation of the tents. The girls' tent, tent number eight, was located the farthest from the camp counselor's tent. And from the counselor's tent, tent number eight was obscured by a shower building. So the counselors couldn't see the tent that the girls were in. Seems safe. It's almost a football field length away. Yes. It's 85 yards from the camp counselor tent to tent number eight. So yeah, almost a football field. And I don't think you can hear anything that's going on 85 yards away unless it's completely quiet. But then there's that building in the middle. I don't think they could have heard anything. There's the building in the middle. There was a storm happening. Like how I'm looking at this aerial picture of this horseshoe. And how the counselor's tent is on one side. There needs to be another counselor's tent on the other side with the other tents in between. Yes, I think, think. yeah, counselor tent where it it was. And then the girl's tent should have been like a second counselor's tent. Right. If you don't have one counselor in each tent. So Lori, Michelle, and Denise's tent was clearly the most isolated, not only in their unit, but in the entire camp. At least one of the girls' parents went to the camp after the murders, and they said that as adults, they wouldn't have even felt comfortable in that tent because it felt really secluded. But there are, you know, other campers who have gone to that camp who loved that tent. I think it's all in your personality, but I wouldn't want to stay in the secluded tent. Mm, No. Okay, so a counselor from the Comanche unit noticed a dim light in the woods just beyond the tree line surrounding the camp. She pointed a flashlight in the direction of the dim light, and it went off. Oh, hell oh, no. God. That gives me the creeps. I know. It's, That's not nature. There's no nature's light that does that. It's about to get real scary. Well, there could be a nature's light that does that. I don't know. <laughs> None of the campers were supposed to be out of their tents at this time, and this light was coming you know, from the wooded area that none of the campers were supposed to be in. So she turned her flashlight off and waited a few minutes. And a few minutes later, the dim light came back on and started moving northwest in the direction of the Kiowa unit. Mm -hmm. That is so creepy. It sounds like a campy horror movie, but this was real. This happened to these kids that were terrorized and murdered. Harla Wilhite, she was a camp counselor. She was 18 at the time. That was the other thing. Most of the camp counselors were just basically kids themselves, you know. So Carla Wilhite, she woke up around midnight in the counselor's tent, and she heard a noise coming from an area off the road by her tent. This is a direct quote from her. Something like a cross between a frog and a bullhorn. It was low and kind of guttural. It wasn't language. It didn't really seem human. It didn't sound like an animal I had ever heard. She went outside with her flashlight, and then she says, quote, Kind of like how an animal would do if you pointed a light at it, it would stop what it was doing when she shined her light on it. I still couldn't really tell where it was coming from. I walked the tents, walked around the unit, and everything was quiet. All the tents were quiet. So I went back to bed and went to sleep. Can I just say an 18-year-old girl should not be walking around in the woods by herself without a weapon. (laughs) And a flashlight is not a good enough weapon. I know. Even if you're at a camp. Yeah. You're in the woods. It was the 70s. They just, they weren't. Peace. Um, Do you think people in the 70s, when they hear, heard stories, were like, it was the 40s. They they didn't probably, know better. And probably. then people in 20 years are going to be like, it was, it was the, the 20s. 20s. <laughs> they didn't know better. Yeah. What really gets me is how I started out telling you all the incidents that had been happening for years leading up to this. Creepy. 
Around 2 a.m., the light appeared in the Kiowa unit. It would disappear and then reappear on the other side of the unit. As the counselors slept, the flaps of their tent were taken off hook screws. Purses and glasses were taken. The light then moved to tent 6. The tent's flap was jerked open and the light flooded the tent. Then the flap was dropped back down. One of the girls in the tent was awake. She couldn't see who opened the tent because the light was so bright, but she could see the shadow of a larger person moving toward the back of tent eight once he closed the flap of her tent back down. In Arapahoe, Quapaw, Kiowa, and Cherokee units, a strange guttural sound was heard throughout the night. In Quapaw unit, a girl who knew Lori Farmer, she heard a girl crying for her mother and she knew that Lori had gotten scared at a previous overnight camp experience, so she thought that Lori was just unable to sleep and was, like, crying for her mom. Hmm. Between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on June 13th, a landowner heard, quote, quite a bit of traffic on a remote road near the camp. Can I just say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you haven't even gotten to the part yet, and I'm, I'm never going camping again. It's terrifying. No, nope, never going camping. I mean, this is what enters my head when people want to go People walking around my tent? No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Why do people camp? I don't know. That, that's a real question. Only scary things happen in the woods. I don't get it. I don't want to get it. Me neither. If I get chilly in this house and I have to put a blanket on, I feel disrespected. Let alone people who are camping in 2020. I don't want people opening my flap. Around 6 a.m. on June 13th, camp counselor Carla Wilhite, the girl who had heard the, the strange noise the night before, she was on her way to the shower when she found Denise Milner dead among her sleeping bag off the road in the forest. She ran to get help, and as they were assessing what was happening, they realized that the other two girls were also missing. They weren't in the tent. Lori Lee Farmer and Michelle Heather Gousset were found in their sleeping bags several yards away from Denise. The girls were about 150 yards from their tent. Their wrists had been bound. Lori and Michelle had been killed by blows to the head. Oh, God. Denise had also been beaten but died from strangulation. And testing showed that two of the girls had been raped while the oh my other. God. Yeah. While the other had been sodomized. Oh my God. It's awful. At the scene, a large red flashlight, a roll of duct tape, and a nylon rope were found next to the bodies. A fingerprint was discovered on the lens of the flashlight, but it has never been matched to anyone. There was also newspaper inside of the flashlight, which was being used to help make contact with the battery so that the flashlight would turn on. Police discovered that the duct tape and nylon rope were stolen from a farmhouse a mile from Camp Scott. The glasses that had been taken from the tents were found discarded around as if someone was like trying to find the right prescription to wear. They were just kind of tossed here and there, which was strange. They also found a bloody footprint from a size nine and a half shoe in the girl's tent. In a cave overlooking Camp Scott, OSBI found a newspaper that was the same edition as the one that was found in the flashlight at the crime scene. In the cave, they also found tape and plastic material used to cover the lens of the flashlight. They also found two photographs of women, a pair of red lace underwear, glasses taken from the counselor's tent and Kiowa unit, and there was also a sign painted on the wall of the cave that said, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. And then it had the date. The only clue to find out who was in the cave were the two photographs that were found. So they posted them on national television and national newspapers across the country to try to see if anyone could come forward to say, Oh, I know who these women are, to try to help link them back to who could possibly have these pictures with them. OSBI agent Harvey Pratt, who is a Cheyenne Arapaho Native American, he left the command post and he went to a nearby creek to perform a sacred smoke ceremony. Three agents joined him in the ceremony and Agent Pratt put medicine from a medicine man into the fire. 
The medicine was given to him to specifically help him in his effort to find the killer of these three little girls. After they completed this ceremony, the phone rang at the command post, and it was a former OSBI agent who could identify one of the women in the photos that had been found in the cave. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. The OSBI agent let them know that the pictures had been developed by a man named Gene Leroy Hart. At the prison, Gene's job was to develop film. Gene Leroy Hart, he was a local jail escapee with a history of violence. Gene had been convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women. During the kidnappings, Gene had used duct tape and nylon rope. The women who he attacked said he made very strange noises and was incoherent. That's what was being heard the night that this all happened. I watched one of the women be interviewed, one of the women that he kidnapped and raped, and she couldn't even put into words a description of the sounds that he made. Oh, that just makes it worse. It makes it, yeah. And it's very strange, you know, that the camp counselor also couldn't really describe it either, what she heard. So those comparisons are a little scary. The woman also said that he took her glasses and wore them and used them, which goes back to the camp scene, finding glasses thrown about and some stolen Gene put rags in the women's mouths, then covered their mouth, eyes, and nose with duct tape. He covered them up with leaves and, like, brush and basically left them to suffocate and die. Mm, That's... But the woman in this interview, she said she still doesn't even know how. She said it's a complete miracle, but she was somehow able to break the tape. And she survived. Hart pled guilty and was sentenced, but he was paroled after 28 months. Which is way too short amount of time. I thought you were going to say 28 years. While he was out on parole, he then was arrested for four counts of first-degree burglary. And this time, he was sentenced to over 300 years. Essentially, the judge felt that, you know, given his first crime, he probably should have never been out of jail. And just kind of threw the book at him as much as possible. Hart was raised about a mile from Camp Scott, so he knew the area really well, very firsthand. There was a huge manhunt for him because at this time he was an escapee. He had escaped from jail during his second sentence. He had been at large since 1973, so for four years he had been living on the land. Police were looking for him. It was the largest manhunt in Oklahoma history. Ten months after the murders of Lori, Denise, and Michelle, he was arrested. He was found at the home of a medicine man, and when he was arrested, he was wearing women's glasses. So in the picture with the striped shirt, he's actually wearing women's glasses. I watched the police be interviewed, and they were creeped out by that because of the basically this theme of glasses following him around. Police later found items that had been taken from a camper who was at Camp Scott the night of the murders. They found a mirror and a toy corn-cobbed pipe. Gene was tried in March 1979. His hair matched the hair found on the tape used to bind Denise Milner's hands. But modern science basically kind of debunks hair as a real piece of evidence. It's not, you can't really prove through DNA that it's actually someone's hair. It just looks similar. Hart's previous offenses of the burglary and then the kidnapping and the rapes were kept out of the trial for Lori, Denise, and Michelle. His fingerprint did not match the print on the flashlight at the scene of the crime, and he wore a size 11 and a half shoe while the print that was found was in size nine and a half. Why did they think this was him, just to refresh my memory? Because of the cave. They found all of those items, including the pictures, and then he was the one who had developed those pictures. Okay. Sperm had also been found on two of the girls, but Gene had had a vasectomy, so his attorney argued that it could not have come from him. Okay. Hmm. Racial tensions were extremely high. A lot of people in the community thought Gene was being railroaded because he was Native American. He was a member of the Cherokee tribe. Many people in the local community thought that he was being set up for an unfair trial. They thought that the police basically decided it was him. And went for it, regardless of anything else. 
Because theoretically, somebody could have taken those photos, had them, and dr- put them in a cave. And that's that's the next thing is a lot of people think that the police had planted evidence. Oh, okay. A lot of the local people thought that police had planted the pictures, that maybe they were the ones that even put that sign on the wall in the cave. They also thought that the sheriff just didn't like him because he was Native American and especially because he had escaped from jail, that he was kind of, he really wanted him to pay for escaping jail, basically. Okay, I don't know where this is going, but if he's escaped from jail, they just need to find him. They don't need to book him for something else. Because when That's he, true. he just go back to prison? That's true. Yeah, he would. Yeah. Mm. Okay. The local sheriff, he said, quote, he was 1,000% certain that Hart was guilty, but a local jury acquitted him, so he was found not guilty. Jury member Leela Ramsey said all 12 of the jury members agreed the crimes had to have been done by more than one person. So they felt like there had to have been at least one more person involved in this crime. She said, quote, I'm not saying he's not guilty, but I am saying that the evidence showed not one person done it by themselves. She said the jurors didn't think there was enough evidence to convict him. I mean, there are three girls, 10 and younger I feel like you could do that by yourself. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did BTK recently, and he killed pretty much a whole family, including the father by himself. I think one of the thoughts behind that is because two of the girls were bludgeoned, and then one was strangled. So they thought, well, why would he change his MO? Mm -hmm. Okay. On June 4th, 1979, two months after his trial... Gene collapsed and died of a heart attack after working out in the prison exercise yard. He still had 305 years of his 308-year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So because this happened so soon after the trials and there was so much, you know, conspiracy and thought of cover-up or planting, all these things, a lot of people felt that he didn't die from a heart attack, that he was killed in prison. So they did an autopsy of his body, and it was found that he did have a heart attack. And this is creepy. They found during the autopsy that the vasectomy didn't take. Oh, my God. So the sperm on the girls could have come from him after all. Whoa. Yeah. This is why I believe they should perform autopsies on alive people (laughs) to just figure out who's what's doing, who's doing what. She could just read people's minds and then you just know. I can. I know what you're thinking right now. Do you? You're thinking, I want to keep reading my story. Exactly. You got it. After the trials, two of the families sued the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council and their insurer for $5 million for alleging negligence. They said that when the girls were found, the first thing that the camp did was call their insurer. Mm. So it's pretty heartless and kind of gross. So before they called the police, they called their families. They called their. Whoa. Yeah. The families also said that when they were notified that their daughters had died, they didn't, they weren't told how. So they didn't even know that they had been murdered or that it was so awful until later. And one of them actually found out about it on the television. Oh, wow. Please tell me this camp isn't in operation in 2020. No, the campers were evacuated that the day that the girls were found, and it has been closed ever since. Good. Yeah. So the civil trial included discussion of the threatening note that had been found in the donut, donut box two months prior to the murders, and the fact that tent number eight was 86 yards from the counselor's tent. But in 1985, by a 9-3 to vote, jurors decided in favor of Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. Wow. I know. That really surprised me. By the 1980s, DNA testing had advanced. So in 1989, DNA testing was conducted that showed three of the five probes matched Gene Hart's DNA. Gene was Native American, and statistically, DNA from one in 7,700 Native Americans would obtain these results. Because only three of the five probes matched, the results were deemed inconclusive. Still, only 0.002% of the population met the characteristics contained in the evidence, and Hart is one of those. 
In 2008, authorities conducted a new DNA test on stains that had been found on a pillowcase. The results were inconclusive because the samples were too deteriorated to obtain a new DNA profile. In 2017, $30,000 in donations were raised by the sheriff in order to do another new DNA test using the latest advances in DNA testing. So I read an article that came out just a few months ago from the Tulsa World that was talking about this case and the story, and they mentioned this money being raised for a new test, but they didn't mention any results. So I don't believe any results have come out or been found yet. We'll definitely have to keep a lookout for any kind of developments and talk about it as they happen. The vasectomy part of the story is insane to me. That is, Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that one really got me. So a little bit about the girls' families. They're all great people, and they all went on to make a difference in the world. So Richard Gousset, who was Michelle's father, he helped the state legislator pass the Oklahoma Victims' Bill of Rights, which has become the model for the rest of the country. So the bill allowed for the creation of a victim witness coordinating center in every judicial district in Oklahoma. So in a lot of um, the interviews that he's given, he said he felt very left out. He felt very in the dark, didn't really know what was happening through his whole experience of you know losing his daughter. So the centers, they basically they help victims and their family understand what's happening at each step and at each stage of the legal proceedings. And they're given the opportunity to voice their opinion on sentences being proposed through plea bargaining procedures. The centers also provide moral support and offer counseling on victims' rights. Richard also helped found the Oklahoma Crime Victims Compensation Board. So they give money to crime victims to basically help them through the time right after the crime. Because it's not like, you know, something's done to you, you're not going to go to work the next day. And then there's all kinds of bills and legal proceedings, you know, things that obviously you're not saving for by any means. Sherry Farmer, who was Lori's mother, she founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. So it's a support group, and she's been a big um, backer of that and helping other families that have experienced tragedy that she has. So it's a completely terrifying, completely devastating story. Um, To some, it's solved. To some, it's unsolved. It's caused a lot of tension in Oklahoma as far as, you know, issues of racial prejudice. I love that when we do stories that connect something that happened 40 years ago to how it's affecting society today. Because I remember we Mm -hmm. talked about that when we first started the podcast, how we wanted to talk about how everything's kind of looped back to today's society because that's in our name. And this is one of those cases for sure. Definitely. Well, I'm glad you did that story because we've had a lot of people asking for us to do that. It's a a heavy one. It's hard. Well, your story isn't going to make my story any better. Oh, no. We don't Um, talk about our stories, guys. It's always a surprise. It is a surprise. Please Um, tell me it doesn't involve kids. It does involve kids. (laughs) It's a very sad story. And I picked it because Halloween's coming up. And it's also a story I feel that's probably essential to be told since it's really close to Halloween. It's It's a story I had never heard of growing up surprised I had never heard of it because it's in our lives and probably shaped the way everybody everybody grew up. Mm. But I don't think it's really talked about that much. At least I had never heard of it. I'd like to start off by saying that Halloween is right around the corner. This year's most certainly different because of the pandemic with all the safety measures being out. We're not handing out candy this year. We had talked about doing like a candy shoot out the window or something. Regardless of whatever precautions may be taken this year, there's always one in particular that seems to be a common practice amongst, I would assume, everybody. That is checking out your children's candy. Oh, yeah. I don't think my parents ever did that. Really? Oh, yeah, mine did. I don't think my parents left me. (laughs) When I was a kid, after I would get home from trick-or-treating, I would dump out my bag of candy on the floor and i would usually sort it out by groups oh, i would put like the reese's with the reese's the snickers with the snickers i did that too yeah. i am not shocked that either one of you did that <laughs> nerds oh, no, courtney no. and i probably just courtney probably made labels let's be honest oh she probably did she's like this label is ugly yeah. she probably re- relabeled the reese's 
Uh, Reese's. Now I went to Reese's. I was OCD at a very early age. And then I put all the crap candy that I didn't want in one pile. Mm -hmm. And then one pile would be like any kind of baked goods, like cookies. Sometimes you get cookies. Sometimes there was like a a couple of houses in my neighborhood that would hand out like these really religious books. Oh, yeah. Did you get like those? Yes. Yeah. Why? And so. Those went in the trash. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who handed out? They handed out religious yeah, texts? Yeah. Wow. And my mom would always be like, throw them away. <laughs> did you guys have, uh, we used pillowcases. What did you use? I would use, use like a Walmart sack. We did use pillowcases a couple times. I feel like when we were really little, we would get the cute little bags, Pumpkins. you know, from the store yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Do you know, I never heard the word sacks until I moved down to Oklahoma. We just call them bags. Like people are like really? store sacks. I was like, what is a sack? I no. feel like I say bag more than sack, but mm-hmm. that's strange that you hadn't heard that. Yeah. We didn't really go trick or treating. I am from a really conservative family. And so our church would have like a fall festival or oh, something. Yeah. And so we would go to that and there would be like games. And as you went from station to station, they'd give you candy. <laughs> I, uh, I went that sounds actually- fun. <laughs> being judged it's fun <laughs> i went actual wow. real life Ooh. trick-or-treating only twice in my life oh my gosh that is insane and you were 25 and 30 <laughs> it was last year <laughs> was last year you were so excited for this year and then the pandemic hit we always went to my grandparents first so they could check out our costumes yeah my we did that too always handed out Reese's and they're my favorite candy. So I, I love Reese's stock up on their candy. And, I, <laughs> and looking back, I'm like, Oh, I didn't leave any for their trick or treaters. Cause I would get like handfuls. Cause I'm going to hear it from my mom. I just know she's going to correct me. We, I do remember as a kid going to the local McDonald's to the police would scan your candy from, I think it was just for metal though, oh. but I don't remember. I don't think it was and like you'll for drugs. Find out why in this story. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah. That's called a segue. I remember growing up, there was always, you know, that urban legend of like, there was someone who got like a needle in their yeah, candy or like bar a razor blade. or a razor blade, yeah. right? Yeah. But I'd never heard any truths to that kind of thing. It was always just an urban legend. Well, my story begins on Halloween night in 1974 with a man named Ronald Clark O'Brien. He lived with his wife, Daneen, and their two children, son Timothy, eight years old, and daughter Elizabeth, who was five at the time. Ronald worked as an optician at Texas State Optical in the Sharpstown area of Houston. He was also a deacon at the Second Baptist Church, where he also sang in the choir and was in charge of the local bus program. That evening began with the family having dinner with friends, with Ronald still dressed in the white optician's coat he still wore to work. After dinner, he and the neighbor, Jim Bates, headed out for an early evening of trick-or-treating with one of Jim's kids and both of Donald's kids, Timothy and Elizabeth. At one of the homes they came to, nobody answered the door. While the children ran ahead to the next house, Ronald O'Brien stayed behind. When he caught up to the group, he was holding five large pixie sticks, which he gave to each of the kids and one kid he recognized from church. He had said someone finally opened the door and gave him those pixie sticks to give out to his kids. Back home, the children asked to eat some of his candy before bed, with Timothy selecting the pixie stick, which he had a hard time opening because it had a stapled, one of the end was stapled. So he asked his dad for help. Timothy had trouble getting the powdered sugar to come out of the straw, so Ronald rolled the straw between his palms to try and break apart the powder. After tasting some of the sugar, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter, so his dad gave him some Kool-Aid to wash it down and sent him on to bed. I don't see where this is heading. I think that's sugar. Not long after, Timothy began vomiting in the bathroom and began convulsing within minutes. Timothy's so cute. I'm looking at his picture. He's a a really handsome kid. Ronald quickly called an ambulance and held him until it arrived. Timothy died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital within an hour of eating the candy. Oh, wow. Detectives who worked on this case, which began at the arrival of Timothy's body at the hospital, so it began immediately. They noted that Ronald wasn't crying or bawling, which you might expect. I'm getting sad looking at his pic- this kid's picture, and it's not obviously not my kid. Even though Ronald wasn't seemed to be super upset that his kid just died, they had no reason to believe he had any kind of involvement. 
Detectives quickly started on a mission to collect the other four pixie sticks. One from Timothy's sister, two from Jim Bates' son. Both of them hadn't eaten any of them oh, yet. Good. And one from the kid that Ronald gave that he'd recognized from church. When they arrived at that kid's house, the parents went into a total panic mode because they couldn't find the pixie stick amongst his candy. So when they went up to his room to locate it, their son was actually asleep and he was holding the pixie stick. He had tried to open it, couldn't get it open, and ended up falling asleep with it. Oh my goodness. Laying on top of him. Wow. One source I found said that the pixie sticks were stapled shut on one end. Lab tests showed that each pixie stick had about two inches at the top stuffed with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. <sighs> Timothy's pixie stick contained enough cyanide to kill two adults. Oh, wow. The other pixie sticks had enough to kill three to four adults. Oh, my goodness. In them. While investigating the case, detectives noticed that Ronald O'Brien's recollections of that night were not cohesive and seemed to have changed quite frequently. And this is a quote. At first, he kept saying, I don't know at home. Then I don't know which street. And but they only trick or treated on two streets. Then he say he didn't see the person and that all I could see was an arm. Nothing was just cohesive. It was kind of all over the place. After methodically walking up and down the neighborhood several times with the police, O'Brien finally directed them to a house. It was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin, who O'Brien said was the person who gave him the candy. However, it turned out that was a complete lie. Courtney Melvin, as it turned out, had an ironclad alibi for that evening. He was actually an air traffic controller working a shift at Hobby Airport with over 200 people that could have seen him at work. Oh, wow. Courtney was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> that jumbo jet, I brought that shit in. He's like, uh, uh-uh. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> not me. And he actually didn't get home until that evening till 11 p.m. Meanwhile, detectives were uncovering more troubling information on Ronald. He had recently sold the family home to cover mounting debts and still owed money to numerous creditors to the sum of $100,000. Which in today's money is about $2.3 billion. It's accurate. Thank you. <laughs> I just Googled it. It's always in the billions with you. It is. <laughs> it is. He had also purchased a $20,000 life insurance policy without his wife's knowledge. I just might add, just in case you're wondering where she is during all this. On each of his children a month earlier. In addition to two $10,000 policies had acquired for them the previous January. Can I just say, I just purchased a policy on Jordan, a life insurance policy. <laughs> really? I really did. Ew. Because it's like the annual <laughs> benefits enrollment, and I just purchased one on him. So if he dies, it's you. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Oh my God, don't die soon. <laughs> wait, wait a few years. Days before Timothy's actual death, he acquired two more $20,000 policies in total of $100,000 or $50,000 for each kid. Which in today's money is what, Bethany? $1.1 billion. billion. <laughs> so $50,000 for each kid had each kid eaten the candy. Halloween that year fell on a Thursday, and Ronald called to inquire about collecting on the policies the very next day, oh my Friday God. at 9 a.m. Oh, wow. More suspicions began adding up. Like the summer before, Ronald had called an old friend who worked for a chemical company and asked him questions about cyanide, including what constituted a fatal human dose. And just before Halloween, he had entered a Houston wholesale chemical store and asked about buying some of the poison. But he left after learning that the smallest package you could buy was five pounds. Five pounds of cyanide, was that wasn't good enough for him? <laughs> That's a lot of pixies. He's like, I really hoped that you would have the one-ton package, so I'm out. Yeah. I'm going to Walmart. With the evidence growing against him, Ronald was arrested on November 5th, 1974. He was indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. He pled not guilty to all charges. His trial started on May 5th, 1975 in Houston, Texas. 
Assistant District Attorney on the case, Mike Hitton, said, We were all shocked that someone could kill their own son, their own flesh and blood, for a lousy $50,000 life insurance policy. The prosecutor had a line of reliable witnesses, which included a chemist who worked with O'Brien testified that O'Brien asked him how much cyanide would be fatal. This was the summer of 1973, so a year before. The chemical supply salesman testified that Ronald O'Brien wanted to purchase cyanide from him, but the quantity wasn't the size O'Brien wanted. Other witnesses included friends and coworkers close to Ronald O'Brien that said in the month before the death, he showed an unusual interest in cyanide and was always talking about how much it would take to kill somebody. Another witness was the neighbor who had gone trick-or-treating with O'Brien. Jim Bates told what happened back at his house after they had finished trick-or-treating. He said that his son went to open the pixie stick he had gotten, but Ronald O'Brien jumped over a coffee table and grabbed it from the boy, saying something that it was too much sugar at night. So it was like he wanted to take it real quick from the boy and say, oh no, you can't have that just probably because his dad was around and he didn't want that happening in front of his dad. Ronald O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law, they both testified that at the funeral for Timothy, Ronald was talking about how he planned to use his insurance money. Oh my gosh. That's sick. Disgusting. He said he was going to take an extended vacation and purchase some items he had wanted. It only took the jury 46 minutes to convict Ronald O'Brien of murder. Good for them. And only 71 minutes to agree on the death sentence. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. In prison, inmates referred to Ronald O'Brien as the Candyman. He appealed his case several times, going as far as the Supreme Court, but all appeals were rejected. They're like, no. You're an asshole. Joel Best a sociology and criminal justice professor at the University of Delaware stated, the horrific death of Timothy O'Brien would prove to be a singular crime, the only deliberate Halloween poisoning fatality ever documented. Yet the case had a kind of echo chamber effect. Unproven rumors of strangers playing deadly Halloween pranks on children had been circulating for decades, and Ronald O'Brien probably calculated that they would serve as a cover for his crime. And while Timothy's poisoning was neither random nor anonymous, the result publicly confirmed parents' anxieties about stranger danger. In the days after Timothy's death, the police would measure that fear in towering piles of candy. People would not go trick-or-treating for years around the area. One detective claimed it forever changed Halloween. Danine O'Brien maintained that she was unaware of Ronald's plans. She divorced him soon after testifying against him in court. She later remarried. Elizabeth, Timothy's younger sister, who was five at the time of Timothy's death, is now 45. She is married and raising a family. Ronald Clark O'Brien died by lethal injection in March 1984. He was declared dead at 12.48 a.m. When the news of his death reached a group of observers who had gathered for the occasion outside the Huntsville prison facility, they cheered and yelled, trick or treat. That's messed up. It's a pretty messed up story. And it's a story like, it's really like an answer as to why those candy suspicions you grow up with, you know, why parents are concerned about checking your candy. It's interesting to know the actual story because it's not like tons of children were targeted and all these neighbors, you know, like yeah. it was just a sick dad. What's disturbing is what I thought when you were telling your story, the difference between like those parents, they lost their children. And I can't think how devastating that must be as a parent versus this monster who murdered his own kid, yeah, willingly gave up his child's life. Just because he was in debt. It's gross. Some money. I witnessed an execution one time when I was a reporter. Seriously? You told me that, yeah. It's kind of messed up, too, how they do it. They put, like, all the reporters go into the prison. They lock you in a room. I think there was maybe five of us. And then when it's execution time, you go into this bus. They drive you from the prison. I think you're still on the prison, but they drive you to another location you go into the execution area and you're in there with relatives and other people. And when you walk in, there's a curtain that's covering basically like the glass of where the killer is. And then they open it up and there's the person in there. He's sitting down or laying down maybe. 
and then um, there's like the person who's going to do the needle, and I think there's a priest maybe in there. It's all very much like you're watching a surgery, and it's just mm. weird. I've only seen it once, but there was obviously inside no cheering or anything. But it's, I always when people when I hear people are cheering or whatever, I always think I don't think they would do that if they saw it because it's you're seeing somebody die. It's just very eerie, I guess. I don't know, but this guy obviously was a monster. Ronald O'Brien uh, maintains innocence up until the moment, you know, he died, and uh, he had written a letter right before his execution. And I didn't even read it because I was so disgusted by the motherfucker that I just didn't, I didn't care to hear what he had to say. He was obviously guilty. I still think I love Halloween. I still think the trick or treating is so weird. It just seemed, and I guess maybe it's because of this case. I feel like it's such a setup for kids to be poisoned, but it sounds like it's not a true thing, but I just feel like it's such an easy setup. When you think about it, it's it's a dangerous it is. thing. All this to say, I'm glad I don't have kids. If I had kids, I don't think I'd sleep. I don't know how you parents out uh, there do it. I really don't. I really don't. Our stories this week were pretty dark yeah, and sad and totally fucked up. So sorry we didn't end on a super light note, but go to your nearest church, your nearest kumbaya. Go to your happy place. Your new, nearest on, kumbaya. Turn on an episode of Friends. Whatever makes you feel... Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek. Whatever you makes say you shits feel on nice. on this episode podcast. <laughs> um, I just want to say that our Halloween special comes out this week. And that's a little more lighthearted. It is. It's definitely creepy, but not... Anywhere near in the same no kids area. You can learn about Jordan, how he died at birth. You can learn about my family's ghost history. Bethany, what can they learn from your story? Hotels are haunted. They are? Yeah. Ooh, and it involves the NBA, which I love. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. And I'm going to do my Courtney impression. You can like learn about weather for Texas. <laughs> Come on, guys. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you have a happy week and a happy Halloween. I don't. I don't know these people. <laughs> I hope you have a great week. <laughs> Check out our website for images from our episode this week. Whatever podcast app you're listening to us on, be sure to hit subscribe or follow. Leave us a review. Hit a, Give us five stars. We love you guys. And go buy these candles. I'm serious. We're not sponsored by them, but they make <laughs> you feel good. They really do. Get some patron saints in your life. Yeah. Jordan, do you have any words of wisdom for for our friends who are listening? Come, little children. No, that was I'll take no. Take the away. <sighs> I shouldn't have asked. Can you? Can we cut his microphone? Ma, can we suspend him for a week? Children, I'll take I don't, okay, I don't know what's going on. Bye, bye. We're gonna go watch Hocus Pocus. Bye. Love you guys. Bye. bye. bye.